You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Mark 1 is where we are. Mark 1. So you'll want to make sure you get your Bible open and you are ready to go in Mark 1. And let me just throw down uh, all of my cards on the table and, and just you know, clearly say what this passage is getting at from the opening statements of, of this morning. So here is the point of the passage. Let me just make sure you see this. Mark 1, 1 through 8. The the primary point of the passage is to show us that Jesus is the point. Okay, so the primary point, what this passage is about, what it's it's doing, is trying to help you and I see that we're not the point, that Jesus is the point. Like he is what this thing is about. This is what it's trying to show us. Now, Now here's my angst for this morning is that I think in this room right now, one of the primary problems that we have, that you have, that I have, is that we really think we're the point. We really think we're what this thing is all about. And this passage is about to grate right across that grain. It is about to cut right into that deeply held belief that a lot of us have right now that we are what this world is about, that that the world orbits around us, that we're at the center. And this passage is about to show us that we're not at the center, that that actually Jesus is at the center. He's at the center of this thing, the center of the universe, and we're the ones orbiting around him. So so this is where we're going, and, and man, I think this is a, is a massively important day for you and for me and for our church that, that God in his mercy might meet us today and convict us today and lead us to repentance in this area today. So, so I've got some big hopes, some asking God for some big things in our church, in you and I today in, in this moment. So, so this is where we're going. Now, it's, it's interesting in light of the, the point of the passage being to help us see that Jesus is the point that the passage is all about John the Baptist. It it barely mentions Jesus in it. So it's got John the Baptist all throughout it. These first seven or eight verses show us a a big picture of who John is, what John's about, what his message is, all of that. So here's what we're about to do. We're going to look at John the Baptist, and we're going to allow God to use John the Baptist to help us see in John the Baptist that it's not about John the Baptist, that it's really about Jesus. So here we go. Um, Three things about him that will just kind of serve as the framework for the morning. Three things that we see in this passage. So the first thing we'll talk about is John the Baptist, the man. Like, who is this guy? Like, who is uh, John the Baptist? Now, let me just start out by addressing something that I hope will make us not sound foolish at some point in the future. If someone ever came to you or or comes to you and asks you the question, where did the Baptist denomination, where did those guys start? Please do not be the guy that says John the Baptist. He was not the founder of the Baptist denomination. We all clear on that? We good? Okay, but the Bible does give us some things about this guy. So uh, a couple of things about John the Baptist. First thing is, we see that he makes his way into the, the beginnings of all four of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have sections that deal with this man, John the Baptist. So, so we know that about him. Luke 1 also shows us who his mom and dad are, Zachariah and Elizabeth, which makes John and Jesus cousins. Kind of an interesting thing to know about John. John and Jesus are cousins. We also know that John is a really good guy. Um, Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells us that among women, there has never arisen a man that is as great as John the Baptist. 
So, so we know that this guy is a top flight guy. And, and also, when you look at uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 5, we, we know that God entrusted John with great influence. So in, John, or in, in Mark 1, 5, we see this. That, and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. So even allowing for hyperbole, th- that is a lot of people going out to John. That, that God had entrusted to John a great crowd of people great ministry, great influence. John had got entrusted John with all of that. So much so that uh, an historian of the first century, his name was Josephus, um, writing about this time period said that the reason that he thought Herod actually had John arrested and later killed was because he was afraid of the power and influence that John had. So, So we know that this was a uh, an influential man in his day. I mean, in, in religious circles, this guy was a rock star. The whole countryside was going out to see John the Baptist do his thing. So this is John the Baptist, the man. But more important than the man, John the Baptist, is the mission. Like, what is John about? What, what is the purpose of John's life? And let me just state it clearly, what these eight verses are going to show us about the mission of John the Baptist, about the purpose of his life, the point of his life. John's mission, or his purpose, was to point to Jesus. That that's the purpose of John the Baptist's life. That that was his goal, his ambition, was to show people and to prepare the way for this Jesus to come. Was to point people to Jesus. That, that's the purpose and hope and ambition of his life. Okay, now with that said, I want to work through these uh, couple of verses here and show you three places in this passage that teach that. That, that are going to show us that the point of his life was actually to point to Jesus. Okay, three places. Let me, let's start in verses uh, 2 and 3. This is the first place. So in Mark 1, 2 and 3, uh, Mark starts by quoting some Old Testament passages. He says this in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, it's interesting here that, uh, that Mark says these are all like from Isaiah, that this quote is from Isaiah. When in truth is, it's actually from three places in the Old Testament. It's not just from Isaiah. So I think what Mark is doing here, though, is he's attributing it to Isaiah because Isaiah is the most notable of all of them. And all of these other places that he's quoting here only make sense in light of Isaiah and his prophecies and predictions of this coming Redeemer. So I think that's why he attributes them all to, to Isaiah. But let me just run down through the three different places in the Old Testament that, that this quote is made from. The first is Deuteronomy 23, 20. Deuteronomy 23, uh, 20. And basically in Deuteronomy 23, it is this, um, it's this talk about this messenger, this divine messenger who will help the people of God. So, you, so you've got this kind of as a starter, that, that in some way that Mark is linking that this Deuteronomy 23 messenger to, to John. But then you've got two more, and I want to read both of these other two uh, to you. The second one is from Malachi, chapter 3. This is going to be on the screen for you. You're welcome to flip there, but easy access on the screen. Malachi, chapter 3. And I'm actually going to start at the last verse in chapter 2 of Malachi. So this is Malachi 2.17 going into 3, chapter 3. It says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Answer. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So if, if you can imagine, in the days of Malachi, people are looking around, all of this injustice, and it seems that God is silent. 
and they're crying out to God, where in the world are you? I mean, all this is going down and you are just silently sitting by here. How can this be? Okay, this is the question they're asking. And and in reality, that's the question that a first century Hebrew man or woman was asking as well. We're being oppressed by a foreign army, the Romans. They're they're a brutal army. How can you just set, you know, how can you just watch this happen? How, How can you passively sit on the sidelines while this is going down? Answer. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. So in light of where is God, here's the answer, verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so here's what Malachi just said. He said that, that where is God? Answer, God is coming. But before the king, before God comes, there is going to be one come before him, a messenger. So God is coming, but before he comes, a messenger is going to come. Now, if you keep reading along in Malachi, we get an interesting detail in Malachi chapter 4, where Malachi gives us one more kind of description of who this messenger would be. God is coming, messenger before him. Malachi 4, one more description. This is in verse 5 and 6. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he adds one more thing in there, that this messenger that I'm going to send before the king, before God comes, like that messenger that's coming, he is going to be an Elijah-like messenger. Now tuck that in your back pocket. We're about to revisit that in about two minutes. So Malachi is saying, there is a messenger coming. This messenger is an Elijah-like person. Okay, then you've got the third quote. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and uh, 4 and 5. It'll be on the screen for you as well. And this is a huge quote. It makes its way into the first of all the Gospels. So, so it's, it's really important. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says this. A voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So so what he's saying here is before a king comes... There's got to be preparation done. So if you can just picture a president coming to any city in America, but before that city receives the president, they're going to make sure their city is put together. They're going to do everything they can to prepare the way for the president to come. And in the same way, he's saying that before God comes, there's going to be some preparation that has to happen. And that preparation is going to come in this one that's going to be crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to make all the uneven ground even. All the rocky things, he's going to plow through them. He's going to prepare the way or the road for God the King to come on. Now you turn to verse 4 in Mark. So that's verse 2 and 3, these prophecies. And you get to verse 4 and here's what it says. We've got all these prophecies of this Elijah-like one coming. This messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord coming. And then you get to verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. 
So it's this direct connection. Mark is saying that you know this one that, is, that has been promised, that this Elijah-like one? He's come. He's here, and his name is John the Baptist. That this is who he is. And you see that even the connection of the wilderness. Why does he go out to preach in the wilderness? Because that's where the guy's going to be crying from. So it's this direct link Mark is making between all of these prophetic predictions of this messenger to our man, John the Baptist. And you even see this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. One of the most notable things about John the Baptist. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Um, I've got a... a a four, three, and a a one-year-old. Our oldest two are in Little Camp Stonegate. And here recently, they did a lesson on John the Baptist. So we're in the car on the way home, and we're just quizzing them about what they learned and all that good stuff. And and their lesson was, was, you know, on John the Baptist. And here's the one thing, when I'm starting to poke around on who's John the Baptist, what is this guy, all that. Here's the one thing Caleb had nailed about John the Baptist. This guy wore camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He had that, it's a really notable thing about him, but I want you to see that this isn't random. Like John doesn't just say, well, I could go, you know, the hair kind of thing, the camel hair. I could go something nice over here. I I could do this over there. It's not that. He's making a theological point, a theological statement in what he's wearing. If you were a first century uh, Hebrew man or woman, and you heard, wow, we've got a guy in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, you would instantly think 2 Kings 1.8. Listen to 2 Kings 1.8. Remember, this is in light of Malachi's, this Elijah-like messenger coming. 2 Kings 1.8. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a leather, or a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Do you see what's happening here? Like the reason John's wearing camel hair and a leather belt isn't because it's like the end thing of the time. It's because he's trying to say to people, I am the Elijah-like messenger that has come to prepare the way for Jesus. Okay, now, let me just make sure that the point is clear here and what is happening in verses 2, 3, and 4. That The point is, is that Mark is saying, John... He is the promise of all of these Old Testament predictions about this messenger. He is that guy. But, but secondly, and this is the major point, he is saying, he's, he's reorienting us and calibrating us around the purpose and mission of John. That John's mission is to point to Jesus. His mission, his purpose is to make sure that he points to the one who is coming. That John is not the point. Jesus is the point. Jo- John's role, his purpose, is to point to Jesus who is the point. Okay, th- that's what's happening here. Okay, that's the first place you see this idea of John's purpose being to point to Jesus. Here's the second place you see it. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Here's what Mark says. And he, talking about John the Baptist, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, t- this whole sandal, stooping down, untying, tying, 
that was like a terrible job in first century world. It would be reserved for the, for the lowest person in the house, typically some sort of a slave or a servant of the house. That's who did, and it would be the lowest slave or servant in the house. That's who did the tying and the untying of sandals. And, and what John is saying here is Jesus is so important. He is so massive. He is so prominent. He is so valuable that I am not even worthy to tie a sandal. That that I am unworthy of the worst job in the kingdom of of God. This is what he's saying. That the point being that that John is not the point. That, That his goal, his purpose is to point to Jesus, this mighty one who is the point. Okay, and then one more time you see it. Third place is in verse eight. Verse eight says this, I have baptized, this is John speaking, this is his preaching, I have baptized you with water, but he, the one who's coming after me, the point, this guy, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, he's showing us why Jesus is the point. I, maybe you could think of it this way. John is saying, listen, here's my problem. All I've got for you is water. But, but the one coming after me, the point, the, 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 this guy, the, the reason he's the point is because he actually has the Spirit of God. See, I'm not the point. All I can do is, is, is point you to the re- where redemption can be found. But the one coming after me, this, this guy, he is where redemption is found. See, all I can do is point you to the place to, to where you can be made right with God. But the one who is coming after me, he is the place that can make you right with God. See, all I can do is point you to where your sins can be forgiven. But this one who is coming, he is the person who can forgive your sins. See, John is trying to acclimate us to this fact that John is not the point. That Jesus is the point. And John's purpose is to point to Jesus who's the point. Are we seeing that? Are we seeing what's happening here? That John is saying, listen, this is not about me. This is about Jesus. So let me just stop and try to just say this as clearly as I can. The reason John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reason that happens is because he's trying to show you, trying to get you to see that that he is not what the story is about, that Jesus is. That he is not the point of of the New Testament. That Jesus is. That he is not the hero. That Jesus is. That he is not the one that people should be worshiping. Jesus is. He is not the one that the spotlight should be on. That Jesus is. That the reason that, that John the Baptist shows up is so he can point you to Jesus who is the point. That that's the reason he's in the New Testament. It's the reason he's in all four of the Gospels which really kind of turns this whole thing around to this question for you and I. Are we, like John the Baptist, seeing that we aren't the point? See, this is really the question of the morning. Are we seeing that we aren't the point? See, it it would be a great mercy from God for, for in this room today, for God to meet us and show us that it's not about you. It would be a great mercy from God today, that, that in this room today, that we would leave with an acute awareness that we're not the point. That this thing is not about us, that this thing is about Jesus. See, it really brings this question to the surface. Is your life about you or is it about Jesus? 
Is your life trying to, trying to get the spotlight so people can see you? Or is it about trying to get the spotlight on Jesus where people will see him? See, that's the question that this passage is asking you and I. Or, or, do you think you're the point or do you think Jesus is the point? Now, here, here's the problem when we start talking like this and about this. It's one thing in this passage to recognize what John is doing, what John's about. The John is about pointing to Jesus, who is the point of everything. It's one thing to recognize that, but it's another thing to figure out what does that look like in everyday life. I, okay, so I even get that, that like for, for my life and in, in your life, that Jesus should be the point, but what does that look like? Does that mean that, that we need to get our camel's hair out? I mean, does that mean that locusts and honey are the new diet for all of us in the room? What does that mean? What does it look like for us to live in such a way where it is clearly seen that we're not the point, that Jesus is the point? So to see that, I want you to flip over to John chapter 3. This is going to be a visible picture of what it looks like for Jesus to be the point of your life. A visible picture of that. John chapter 3. So just flip to the right there. John 3, starting in verse 25. Verse 25 says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now do you see the problem in this passage? Do you see what the the rub is? The, The rub is this. There was a time when John the Baptist was the man. Everyone in Judea and Jerusalem were going out to see John the Baptist. But all of a sudden, Jesus gets on the scene, and John the Baptist isn't such hot stuff. Now the crowds aren't all flocking to John the Baptist. Now they're actually flocking to Jesus. This is the problem. So now John's disciples come to him, and they're beside themselves. You can just see embedded into these couple of verses the animosity and jealousy that they have. In verse 26, when they're talking about Jesus, they can't even use his name. It's, he, it's, it's him. It's that guy across the Jordan. They can't even say his name. That's the sort of animosity that they were feeling. That's the sort of attack they were feeling. Where are all of our people? These people were our people. This ministry was ours. Now they're all going to him. What's going on here? This is the rub that's, that's happening. And now I want you to see what it looks like for Jesus to be the point in how John the Baptist responds to this dilemma. How he responds to his disciples who are coming to him and saying, we've got a problem. All of the people that we had are now going to him. Here's, here's a picture of Jesus being the point. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not not one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Here's what John is showing us. If you want to know what it looks like for Jesus to be the point, here's the picture. It looks like a humble recognition that everything above hell is a gift from God. A humble recognition that everything above hell is a gift from God to us. It has been grace to us that we did not earn that, that God in his mercy, if if anything above hell has been given to you, God in his mercy has met you there. 
See, what John is doing here in in verse 27 is he is confronting in his disciples a wrong way of seeing the world. A a wrong way of seeing. In their mind, they had earned these things. And John is saying, no, who gave you ministry? Who gave you influence? Who gave you these crowds? Answer, God did. That's who gave them to you. But see, what's happening in the heart of his disciples is they had taken one of God's gifts that they should have enjoyed. They should have looked at God and said, thank you, God, for entrusting this to me, even if it's for a season. But they took this gift from God that God had placed in their hand and they gripped their hand around it, closed their hand around it. to where now they felt entitled to it. This gift now is not negotiable, God. We have earned this. You owe this to me. These crowds, this influence, these people, you owe these people to me. Now contrast that with, with John. They think they're the point. So it's give me the crowds, give me the influence, give me the ministry. You owe me, God. But, but look at John. He is coming from a much different perspective, isn't he? That, that, that all of this is a gift from God. That, that John is saying this is a great gift from God that we should be enjoying but when God decides he wants to take it, listen, it's his gift. He can give it, he can take it. And when God decides he wants to take it, I can still enjoy life without this gift because I still have God to enjoy. You see that? See, his disciples, he, they can't do that. Why? Because it's all about them. But John can because it's all about Jesus for John. So let's just press this down and ask the question. Are you ungrateful? I, I think one of like the pervading problems in suburbia is just a general ungratefulness for the many gifts that God's given us. I mean, are you grateful? Are you a great? Is there a humble gratefulness to you for all the different ways that God has shown you grace? Or is there like this entitlement thing to you? That God, you gave me this, and how dare you even think about taking that? God, you gave me this house, how dare you consider taking that from me? God, God you gave me this family, how dare you? I mean, we, we could go down the list here, right? God, you gave me this job, how dare you? I mean, is, is there like an entitlement to you with God that, that God, you owe me? See, if, if you've got entitlement in your life, if that's you, if there is this lack of gratitude, this joyful, you know, enjoyment of what God has given you, if that is lacking, or if there's this entitlement, it's showing you that you think you're the point, not Jesus. When Jesus is the point, we, we can say this with all of God's gifts. I can have them, I can lose them. As long as I've got God, I'm good. See, when Jesus is the point, that's how our heart operates. It's how it works inside of us. So number one, what does it look like to, to make Jesus the point? What does that life look like? It looks like a humble recognition that everything above hell is a gift from God. Here's the second one, verse 28. Se- second picture of what it looks like to make Jesus the point of your life is, is that we are living out of a constant awareness of our identity. That we're living out of a constant awareness of our identity. Look at verse 28. John says this, and he's correcting them in this. That they are upset They are mad about the crowds going to Jesus. And here's what he says. Verse 28, you yourselves bear witness about me. In other words, you've seen this play out in my life. You know I've said this. You know this is what I'm about. He goes on. 
that you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I am not the Christ. I am the one that's been sent before the Christ. Okay, so let me maybe come at this from two different angles. This idea of John having an acute awareness of who he is and who he isn't. See, John knew, first of all, who he wasn't. I am not the Christ. Here's what John was really aware of. That I am not God, that God is God. And can I just tell you in this room this morning, every single one of us need to be reminded that we are not God. Every one of us need that reminder. That, that, listen, you are not God. You're not. And you say, well, Rodney, that sounds kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I know that I'm not God, right? Well, you need to think about how non-ridiculous that is for a second. I mean, are you aware that every time you sin, every time you sin, you are in essence saying, God, you are not God right now in this moment. I'm going to be God in this moment. That is what sin is. See, sin is not the result of not believing there's a God in the universe. Sin is the result of believing you are God in the universe. See, that that is what sin is. This is why sin is treason. It's not just some small behavior thing that you did. It's treason against God. I, I love how John Stott describes sin. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. In other words, man saying, God, you get out of the place of God, I'm going to take the place of God. It's man substituting himself for God. Man asserting himself against God and putting himself where only God deserves to be. See, this is what sin is. So, and this is why we need a constant reminder in our life that we aren't God. That God is God. That you need a constant reminder of that. That listen, you are not God. You're not you can't handle that place, right? We, we are not God. John, John knew this. He's living out of this awareness of who he's not. I am not the Christ. I am not God. I am not the point. And, and then he's living out of this awareness of who he was in Christ. Look what it says, the last half of that, verse 28. But I have been sent before him. I, I love that phrase. You, you know how John defines himself? John defines himself in relationship to Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. Now, let me tell you the alternative to that. The alternative is you you can define yourself by your accomplishments. So when, when you accomplish much and do great, you are awesome. You are arrogant. You are prideful. You are the man. But when you stink and you can't accomplish anything, then you're depressed and you're down in the dirt. See, this is what happens when you base your life on your accomplishments. See, the alternative is basing your life on the approval of other people. What they think about me. What he thinks about me. This is why when we're in a, like a, a job review, a performance review, when the boss says, you did great this year, then we automatically leave that office with a puffed up chest thinking we are the man. Why? Because our boss approved of us. But when he looks at you and says, you're terrible. That's why we get down on the dirt and, and threaten to quit the next day and crawl in a hole and die, right? It's because our approval, it's because the approval that we're looking for, like we're basing our identity, you know, on, on the approval of people, on the approval of a, jo- or of, a, of, a, of a boss, the approval of a spouse, the a- approval of a friend. See, that, that's the sort of alternatives that we have here. And see, making Jesus the point of your life means that, that like John here, we are basing our life, 
defining our life based on what Jesus has done for us. That, that we're defined by adopted child of God. That, that's what we're defined by. Who, who we are in relationship to Jesus. So can I just ask you that question? See, when you're the point, you're defined by a million other things. When Jesus is the point, you're defined by one thing, and that's him. You recognize that you're not God. And you recognize that your value and worth and significance and security and satisfaction all come from Jesus. So can I just ask you the question, where is that for you? If we were going to take a snapshot of your life and say, is Jesus the point? And we were going to look at, are they basing their identity on who they are in Christ? Or on their accomplishments? Or on the approval of other people? What would we see there? Jesus the point, you the point. So that's the second way that we show that Jesus is the point of our life. Here's the third. If you want to know what it looks like for Jesus to be the point, here it is. There's an an unbiding and unshakable joy in our life. That when Jesus is the point, that there is this joy that pervades and soaks everything that we do. So look at verse 29. I love this verse here, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, it's when we start to rejoice at the bridegroom, with the bridegroom, at his worth, at his worship. Therefore, in light of that, because of that, this joy of mine is now complete. Okay, so here's what John's doing. John is using the picture of a wedding. So can you picture the last wedding you were at? So, so here's typically how the wedding starts. The, the pastor and the, and the groom come out, and he's got a, a crew of men that have followed him to the front of, of the stage. So you've got the, the groom right here in the middle, and you've got all of his men lined up beside him. Now can you imagine the scene where the best man looks over at the groom, and they literally get into a fight on who's going to be in the center of the stage? on who gets the spotlight. So so the best man says, no, I want the spotlight. And the groom is like, listen, this is not about you. This is not your day. This is my day. You get in your place, right? Can can you imagine that? Here's what John's saying. That is what many of us are doing when we become the point of our life. That, That we are the best man trying to kick Jesus out of the spotlight of his wedding. Now, see, picture this wedding. Picture this wedding where the best man, he intentionally tries to stay out of the center. He is looking at his friend, the groom, and he is rejoicing because the spotlight is on him. He willingly and gladly ducks out of the spotlight so it all hits him. He he rejoices because every eye in the room is on the groom, on his friend. See, that's what it looks like for Jesus to be the point of your life. For us to start taking joy in, being glad when we duck out of the spotlight and Jesus steps into it. It's us finding joy in being the best man who rejoices when every eye is on the groom. See, this is what it looks like for Jesus to be the point. And and here's what he's saying, that when you start to live like that, 
When you start to, to align yourself like that, Jesus being the point, you being the best man. Jesus being where all the attention is, you being in the background. When you start to live your life and see your life like that, then your heart will be reacquainted with the joy that God gives. That your heart will be glad and joyful. That there will be this unshakable joy in that. Now, this idea leads us to um, one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite authors. And, and, and he tears right into the middle of this idea that we are a people, the people of God, who get to stand in the background, get to duck out of the way of the spotlight, so all the glory, all the worship, all the praise goes to Jesus. So, so let me read this quote to you. I and mean, I just want to encourage you to lay this over your life and to ask hard questions about your life in light of it. Here's what he says. He says, I often ask people this question. Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you, puts the spotlight on you, makes sure people praise you, because he makes much of you, or because at great cost to himself, he frees you, to enjoy making much of him forever. So, so do, you, do you feel more loved by God? Because picture the wedding again. Because he rips Jesus out of the way and puts you right in the center, although you're the best man. Make sure every eye on you, people are stroking you, people are praising you. Do you feel more loved by God because he puts you in the center of the wedding? Or do you feel more loved by God because he has done a work of grace in your heart to allow you to be joyful in being the best man, ducking out of the spotlight so Jesus can be made much of? See, he's asking, what is your life about? When do you feel more loved by God? What's the goal of your life? Making much of you or making much of Jesus? And he goes on to say this. The point of that question is to expose the deepest foundations of our happiness or of our joy. Whether it is ourselves or, or God. Is the deepest basis of our joy God's greatness or our greatness? In other words, are we more joyful when the bride looks, or the, when the groom looks great or when we look great? He, he goes on. Am I more satisfied praising him or being praised? As the best man, am I more satisfied when everyone is praising Jesus or everyone praising me? Am I God-centered because of his surpassing value or am I God-centered because he highlights my surpassing value? Would it even be heaven to me to see God or would it be heaven to me to see God or to be God? That's the question. Are we content, are we joyful playing our role as the best man, the background actor, as we try to get all the attention, as we try to focus all the light on the groom Jesus? That's the question. So can I just ask you that? Do you want people around you to look at you and think, wow, what, a, what an awesome person? Or do you want people around you to see you and think, what an awesome God? What is number one on your list? Awesome you, awesome God. People praising you, people praising God. People thinking much of you, people thinking much of God. Here's what it looks like for God to be the point of your life, for Jesus to be the point. It's for the number one hope and ambition of your life to make much of, of Jesus. And lastly, number four. 
What, what does it look like? What, what, what does it look like, this picture of making much of God, of Jesus being the point of your life? Number four looks like this. A willingness to lose for Jesus to look good. That we'll gladly lose so Jesus can look, look, look good. Look at verse 30. Man, what a breathtaking verse here. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That he's got to look good, and even if his looking good costs me looking bad, I am in. I must do that. And listen, you see that must there in verse 30? That is not like a must of resignation. That is not a must of like, you've got to go into early retirement. That is not that sort of a must. That is like a passion of my heart, the desire of my heart, the deepest want in my soul is to make Jesus look good regardless of the cost. This is what John's saying. That the deepest passion I have on this planet is to make much of Jesus. Now, so, so let's just turn that around. Is that yours? That's the question. Is that yours? And, and let me just maybe even illustrate that application by two stories, two scenarios. I want you to picture these two scenarios playing itself out in your life. Scenario number one, your life blows up in the best sense of the word. You've got great health. You've got a great family. You've got more money than you know what to do with. You've got a great job. You've, I mean, you've got everything you could want in this life. You've got a long life, but you don't make much of Jesus in it. That's scenario number one. You've got everything this world has to offer, but not making much of Jesus. Scenario number two, your life blows up in the worst sense of the word. You've got no health. You're broke as a joke. You don't have a dime to your name. Your family has fallen apart. Your kids are rebellious. I mean, it has just been an absolute disaster in every way it could be a disaster. And on top of that, you're cut down in the prime of your life. You live a few short years and, and, and you're done. But in those few short years, you make much of Jesus. Now, can I ask you, the, the, those two scenarios, which one are you signing up for? And I think it would be the desire of God and a real work of grace in our church for us as a, as a group of people, us as a church to say without reservation, give me scenario two. I will decrease. I will die. I will have no health. I'll have bad health. I'll have whatever it requires to make Jesus look good. Him increasing, us decreasing, I'm in for that if, if it makes him look great. If it takes me looking bad to make him look great, I, I'm in. And I think that would be the desire of God and a great work of grace in our church. Um, Laura and I have been doing uh, premarital counseling, or not premarital, but marital counseling. We, we actually got married a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> well, you ought to try this speaking thing and just see what words come out of your mouth periodically. And, uh, and for us, it's preventative medicine. We go about once a month. You ought to try it. I think it would be great for your marriage too. Um, but it's, it's preventative medicine. We were talking a couple of months ago uh, with Dale, and we were talking about our hope for preaching at Stonegate and how God would look really great in our preaching at Stonegate. And so Dale tells this story about him. I think he was on a mission trip somewhere in South America. And uh, he tells this story about this girl getting up to do a solo at the church that they were worshiping at that morning. And it was a disaster. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those solos, but this was one of those. She comes in at the wrong time. She's on the wrong, you know, pitch. She can't remember the words. She pulls the whole, we've got to cut this thing halfway through the first verse, and they start over. And round two is just as big of a disaster. 
I mean, it's just humiliating, terrible, all of that. And Dell says, uh, I have never seen Jesus look so good as he did in her looking so foolish. Her humble response to that, never seen Jesus look as good as I saw him look in that moment as she responded humbly to being an absolute fool in front of people. He looks at me and asks me one of those questions then. He said, what if, what if God looking great in your preaching and the preaching of Stonegate, in, in Stonegate required you to look like an absolute fool? Are you up for it then? I mean, I, I just want to tell you that the desire of my heart is to be able to say yes to that. That, that in whatever way, it, whatever decrease means, that I am in for decrease as long as that means increase for Jesus. That whatever that means, I, I'm in for that. If that means that I have to look foolish so, so God can look strong or wise, I'm in for that. If that means that I have to be weak and look weak for God to look strong, I am in for that. And I want us to be in for that. Whatever it means for us to decrease, as long as decreasing means Jesus increasing, that we would be a people who say, yes, I am in. So, so maybe I can just boil down the point of this and just make it real, real clear. The, the question is, what is the point of your life? Are you the point? Is Jesus the point? Are you what it's about or is Jesus what it's about? And I just think that a lot of us need to hear this this morning. You are, you're not the point. You are not what is supposed to be at the center of the universe. Maybe we could say it this way. Almost every one of us in the room, including me, we need to get over ourselves. Amen? We need to get over ourselves. We need to see that we're not the point, that Jesus is the point. He's what it's about. And can I just tell you for the men in the room who... who, who Let's just say marriages. Your marriage is really struggling. Can I just tell you, it is not going to get better until you get over you. It's not. You're in relational conflict. It is not going to get better until you get over you. See, when, when you think you're the point and I think I'm the point of the universe, it leads to a, a million smaller sins. It leads to envy and rivalry and, and that whole ugly side of jealousy that we're seeing in John 3. It leads to lust. I mean, it leads to a million smaller sins. Impatience. See, men in the room, you are not going to be the husband that God has called you to be until you get over you. Parents in the room, until you get over you, you're never going to be the parent God has designed you to be. Until you get over you, until, until you're no longer the point, but Jesus is the point, until you get over you, you're always going to live vicariously through your kids. This is the reason that like parents get into a fight at a fourth, fourth grade football game, right? Fourth grade football game. Because they're the point. They can't get over them. See, teenagers, here, here's the thing that you need more than anything else in the world is for you to get over you and to get to Jesus. See, th this is like the thing we need this morning in the room is for us to get over us. See, when you're the point, discontentment saturates your heart. When Jesus is the point, contentment, a heart that is satisfied in God, shows up everywhere in your heart. When you're the point, joy is an impossibility. When Jesus is the point, an unshakable joy grows naturally. 
When you're the point, worry overwhelms your soul. And that's some of us here this morning. Worry just eating us up because we're the point. But when Jesus is the point, you're free to enjoy life. When you're the point, every conversation revolves around you. When Jesus is the point, every conversation revolves around others. When you're the point, you're constantly critical of those who oppose you. When Jesus is the point, you're free to compliment and encourage even those who oppose you. When you're the point, you have to have it your way. When Jesus is the point, you are free to allow others to have it their way. When you're the point, the church is here to meet your needs. When Jesus is the point, you are free to give your life away to meet the needs of others. When you're the point, your family's job is to serve your needs. When Jesus is the point, your job is to serve the needs of your family. When you're the point, comfort consumes our life. When Jesus is the point, the mission of God consumes our life and leads us to befriending neighbors, inviting them into our lives so that they can see the difference that Jesus makes. When you're the point, you'll keep people on the outside, aka community, saying no to that. When Jesus is the point, you'll invite people into your life so that they can push you to be more like Jesus. When you're the point, you'll you'll always have to present yourself as strong and wise. When Jesus is the point, you are free to be weak and foolish so Jesus can show himself as strong and wise. When you're the point, you're always trying to figure out how how you can win. When Jesus is the point, you're always trying to figure out how Jesus can win. And can I just tell you, church, I want us to be a people who make Jesus the point who are always trying to ask, how can we make Jesus win? Amen? Last thing and we'll be done. Is that's the man, and then we got the mission. The, the point of his life is to make Jesus the point, to show Jesus, to point to the point. Um, and, and lastly, we've got the message of John the Baptist. I just want you to quickly to look at verse 4. Verse 4. The message. Here's the message of John the Baptist. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John tells you something in verse 4 and invites you into something in verse 4. Here's what he tells you. It's like this foreshadowing of the gospel that in Jesus, listen, there is forgiveness of sin. Isn't that great news? The good news of the gospel is that for even people who think, really think that they're the point of life, that there is forgiveness to be had for that. That that Jesus even paid for that on the cross. John's just reminding us, he's telling us here, that there is forgiveness in Jesus. He's announcing that, that there is forgiveness of sins. And listen, he is preaching to people who are the point, who who think they are the point, who, who cannot calibrate their hearts around Jesus being the point, God being the point. And he's saying that even for you, listen, there's forgiveness to be had for that. And it's when you actually start seeing that Jesus, that he has secured your forgiveness, that that he is not just a king to be a servant to, but he is a king that has bowed down, humbled himself, and died for your sins so that you could be forgiven. It's not until we start to see that, that we no longer want to be the point, but we want to make him the point. It's when we start to see that in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven, that our heart's natural outflow is to say, yes, and let me do everything I can to worship that Jesus. So he's telling us something. There's forgiveness to be had in Jesus. And he's inviting us into something. Do you see that word repentance in verse 4? 
He's inviting us to repent, to turn from us being the point and, and turn to Jesus in faith, saying, God, I want you to be the point. I, I want that to be you. I want this to be about you, my life to be about you, my family to be about you, for everything to be about you. He's inviting you into that, to repent. It's this, it's this invitation to come and meet Jesus and to repent of you being the point and to make Jesus the point. I love what J.I. Packer, he defines repentance like this. And I'll just leave you with this quote. Here's how he defines repentance. And I pray this would happen today. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And I pray that this would be a morning for you. That you would give as much of you know as your, of your sin, turn from as much as you know of your sin, to, and, and, and give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of this God of the universe who is the point. Amen? Let's pray together. I give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to just settle this over you and to press what would be most helpful and you need to hear today into your soul this morning. Amen. Here's what I'm praying for, for us in the room is that God would get us over us. Amen. That God would get us over us. And that God would get us to Jesus. And God would put in our heart a deep want and desire to make much of Jesus. And so, men in the room, can, can I just remind you that, that you aren't God. That you aren't the point. That Jesus is the point. And, and I just can't imagine that repentance wouldn't be needed this morning. I can't imagine that for, for the men in the room that we wouldn't need to get on our knees before God, to, to turn from, from this sin of making our, our own life the point, and in faith turning to Jesus, thanking him for forgiveness, th thanking him that we can be made right with God because of him, even in the midst of our sin. And, and men, I can't help but think that wouldn't lead to conversations of confessing and repenting of sin in front of your family today. And ladies in the room, I, I think the same would be applicable there. I just can't imagine that, that we wouldn't be in great need of repenting of that this morning. Uh, of taking John up on this offer of repentance. And I can't imagine that that wouldn't lead to us before our family today repenting and confessing of the fact that we have been about us and not about Jesus. And expressing that the desire of our heart is to be about Jesus. To plead with Jesus to change our heart. To give us deep desires to make much of Him. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.